Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, a podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. I'm your host, Bill Widener, and this episode is a little different than usual. Last week on Wednesday, January 12th, I had the privilege to moderate a panel of four very astute speakers for the New York Making a Comeback live virtual discussion with the New York Real Estate Journal and the publication's main MC, Rick Kaplan. This is the audio from the event, which of course I edited to fit the podcast format. So here we go. Showtime. Welcome, everyone, to the New York Making a Big Comeback of 2022 webinar. I'm Rick Kaplan, New England and New York real estate journal, radio show podcast, and Bill Widener, the host of Realty Speak podcast. And here is our panel. We have Michael Sahn. He's the managing member of Sahn Ward, Bob Knackle, chairman of New York Investment Sales at JLL, Melissa Roman Birch, executive general manager at Len Lease, Gary Meltzer, partner at Meltzer Lippe. Goldstein and Brightstone. And now I'm going to turn it over to my moderator, Bill Widener. Thanks, Rick. Good morning, everyone. Today, we're joined by quite the illustrious panel. All of you may remember when things started to change a few years back. Brick and mortar retail was already dealing with the effects of a shift in online buying. And then in June 2019, the New York State Legislature passed the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act, which has had the most impact on value-add underwriting for New York City multifamily investments. And as if that wasn't enough, nine months later is the pandemic, bringing with it a mass shutdown of shared space and the advent of WFH, work from home. Now, fast forward 30 months to the present, and we are still dealing with ever-changing strategies on how to behave at home, at play, at school, and at work. So how does New York come back? or should I say come forward? Well, this panel, with 104 years of industry expertise, yeah, I looked it up and I added it up, is certain to make today's chat one heck of a discussion. So let's get started. We got a lot to cover. Michael, let's start with you. With the many changes to the commercial real estate industry over the last few years, in what ways have you observed adaptation and innovation on Long Island, where you're located? And what are some of the challenges and benefits? First of all, Bill, I want to thank you and I want to thank Rick and my other panelists for the opportunity to be part of this discussion today. I think the title of the program is uh, quite appropriate. It's come back. And I think we all recognize that we're coming back perhaps in somewhat different ways than we originally started. There was a lot of discussion at the beginning of the pandemic about returning to normal. I think we're all crafting the new normal. And that's the whole idea, I think, of today's discussion. So in that regard, I'd like to highlight just several of the important changes that I've seen over the last couple of years, especially since the pandemic, that are driving forces, especially on Long Island. First of all, healthcare has become a prime driver in the real estate market not just in terms of the standalone healthcare campuses, but healthcare is now expanding its footprint into 
administrative office space, strip shopping centers that are no longer useful for the type of strip mall tenants that previously existed, ambulatory care facilities, the urgent care facilities, and a variety of different type of, I would call them research laboratory facilities. The healthcare industry also includes medical school facilities. And what we've seen over the last few years with healthcare is that the major healthcare systems and the various other organizations, such as ProHealth, are looking to expand the facilities, rent new space, and they seemingly have an insatiable demand for various kinds of space. So I think this is going to be a continued trend in the marketplace with respect to healthcare. Also, as I think we've all recognized, there's been a tremendous amount of what people call last mile facilities. Warehouse and distribution space is at a premium. There seems to be, like healthcare, an insatiable demand for spaces that can be used for warehouse and distribution, reflecting our new norm, so to speak, where people want uh, goods and services delivered to their homes. And that is also driving uh, increases in the need for new transportation facilities to serve the distribution of these goods. The other point that I think has reached a market turn is the need for affordable housing. You can't have a fundamental base in the marketplace unless people have a good place to live that they can afford. At the beginning of the pandemic and continuing now, we've all seen how single family home prices have skyrocketed. We have bidding wars and that sort of thing for the single family homes. But likewise, there's a marked need for affordable housing. Now that encompasses a wide variety of housing opportunities. It's housing that is typically called workforce housing, housing for different demographic groups, seniors, assisted living, that kind of housing. And we need to provide that to sustain growth and development on Long Island. Much of that is also coupled with mixed use. There's been a tremendous amount of mixed use redevelopment where the housing is coupled with retail or other commercial space to reinvigorate our Long Island downtowns. The last point I wanna make, and obviously there are many that we can discuss, but the last major point I see is an increase in the development of sustainable communities. We're surrounded by water on Long Island. The climate change or climate crisis, if you will, is leading to rising sea levels. We all acknowledge the need for alternative energy sources from wind and solar. There is a need to decrease the use of water for irrigation purposes and sustain our water supply systems. So we are now looking at many ways to enact green zoning laws, so to speak, use green energy, and make sure that we have a fundamental base for future growth and development on Long Island. Those are my key points for discussion today. 
that was very, very informative, Michael. And I, I actually want to ask you a question about some of those things. In terms of all those changes that could happen, what are you observing? And every, everybody else, feel free to chime in on this. What are you observing in terms of on Long Island, the townships, the villages, and uh, the few cities that exist on Long Island, accepting this repurposing of use and also the development of multi-story, affordable, mixed-use, affordable market-rate housing. Because I listened to the hearing for Good Cause Eviction on Friday with the New York Senate Judiciary Committee, and there were a bunch of Long Island builders that got on, and they said that there's a lot of pushback in the townships and in the villages and in the few cities to build multifamily housing. There is a lot of pushback. And it's becoming an educational process with the elected officials. Uh, people, as uh, we expect, uh, don't always embrace change. It takes time. It takes persuasion. It takes discussion. And certainly many community groups are uh, looking at things and saying, well, we like things the way they are. They may not be perfect. And we don't necessarily want change. But over the last couple of years, my observation is that more and more of the elected officials are acknowledging the need for these changes. And the general tenor is becoming more acceptance of different kinds of development opportunities. I think people recognize to sustain our tax base here, which is driven by real estate taxes, we need to make changes. If we don't make those changes, we're not going to have a long, sustainable community. Gary, you're out on Long Island as well. What are you seeing on the transaction side? Is there an increase in transactions for development sites, existing structures that are destined for reuse? Speak to a couple areas. So you asked about Long Island. So yes, the transactions that I'm seeing on Long Island are, there's an increased pace of transactions. I would say in the following areas, I've seen, I'm seeing a lot of shopping center activity. So retail has been down. We all know that. Um, and there's a lot of vacancies. Demand has been down. The pandemic has killed you know, retail brick and mortar. But um, whenever something is down, that's when a lot of professionals in the business see opportunities. So there's a lot of demand for shopping centers, surprisingly. Um, but in the industry, we understand that because opportunities are always sought. And then there's an element of developers and owners who see opportunities to repurpose. Where you have shopping centers, for example, that's what I'm focused on now, that, have, that are on large tracts of land, and maybe there's development opportunities on the land because it's not built to capacity. And a lot of large retail have gone out. Um, there have been a lot of bankruptcies. So the opportunities are to perhaps repurpose 100,000 square foot or 150,000 square foot buildings into warehouse and industrial and sort of create mixed use destinations, keeping some retail, changing what was retail into other uses. So we're seeing a lot of that going on where your sponsors and developers are strong and have great track records. Seeing lenders competing for deals. On a lot of deals, I see several lenders competing for the same deals. And this is but the combination of debt out there 
a lot of equity on the sidelines wanting to go into real estate because interest rates in the banks are so low are leading to a lot of opportunities. Say the other thing that we saw in 2021 was owners who were maybe going to be sellers, but not in the market necessarily to sell traditionally, saw 2021 as an opportunity to take advantage of a couple of things. First off, owners of office buildings and shopping centers and other asset types see vacancies all over the place and say, wow, the real estate market price-wise is so strong. And tax rates, there was talk in Congress, the tax rates were going to go up, capital gains in 2022. So a lot of owners saw the sort of perfect storm of prices are high, vacancies are pretty high, there's a lot of dark spaces, and and tax rates may go up. So this is probably my best time to sell. And so we saw a lot of what would have not been sellers become sellers over the last year. And that led to a lot of transaction volume. That's sort of my experience on Long Island and then in New York City, where, where I also do a lot and probably had a lot more transactional activity. So I'll just take a minute to speak in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens. And what I'm seeing, there's a tremendous flurry of activity. For example, picking up on what Michael said about how healthcare has become such an important part of the real estate um, in terms of transactions and activity, just closed about a month ago on a significant acquisition on the Upper East Side, 94th Street near First Avenue, of a large tract of land, a few buildings, a few lots, which is going to be developed into a about a four to $500 million life sciences substantial building. So you might say, and a lot of people would say, 94th and 1st in Manhattan, what's there? Well, what's there is, and what the opportunity is, A, life sciences has become one of the hottest areas in real estate because there are so many businesses now that are in the life sciences area. The real estate play is because you are surrounded by hospitals and medical-related institutions. So just there, you have within a mile, one mile, one and a half mile radius, you have Mount Sinai Hospital, you have Metropolitan Hospital, you have Lenox Hill Hospital, you have Weill Cornell, you have Rockefeller University. That's where we're seeing so much activity in, in that area. And then I will tell you, because our client was one of New York City's top developers, tremendous track record, the debt that is chasing that because it's now going to be financed is there's a line out the door of lenders who want to lend on that type of product. One other thing, the last mile distribution is so hot and coveted. So anybody who's sitting on some land that has some size to it, that can become the use for warehousing and distribution centers, and maybe near you know good road access, that market's on fire. Based on what both of you said, it sounds like there's a lot of optimism and there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. And what I want to do now is switch over to Manhattan. Thank you for that segue, Gary. Melissa and Bob, you two are based in Manhattan. Melissa, your Lendlease does a lot of development, and then they continue to own and manage what they develop. And Bob, you know, you've been you've been in the multifamily real estate industry. I think you invented the multifamily real estate industry <laughs> because you have been in it so long, you probably know every building in Manhattan when you founded Massey Knackle back in the day. Uh, you had a very, very 
unique approach uh, to how your brokers worked and how they got to know the owners in different locations in the city. And I am really, really looking forward to you sharing with us uh, what you've observed and what you expect to happen as we go forward. Uh, but before we do that, Melissa, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know what's happening on the development side? And, and I understand that in your background there, that's one of your buildings. Thanks, Bill. And thanks for having me on the show. 2021 was an incredible seesaw in the world of residential real estate here in New York. We saw 2021 have over 16,000 contracts signed. This is the most signed contracts in a single year. So you're talking about a marketplace where we went from some of the worst of times in the residential markets to really having record-setting year. And I think that this is important context because buyers of residential real estate are really looking at reduced prices, low interest rates, a desire for more space. And there is a buyer resilience in New York that has really drove demand to historic heights. This has been an exciting year. It was certainly standing at this point in 2021. No one, I think, could have predicted what we would have seen, but there was a lot of pent-up demand that chose to really put their money to work in New York. So speaking about recovery, comeback, New York City's resilience... This is why people say don't count New York out, because time and time again, New York has shown its ability through so many strong elements of the city. I mean, one of which was really touched on with, you know, with its incredibly diverse economy. We heard a little bit about the investments in life sciences. New York benefits from being a very diverse economic center, whether it's finance or tech or life sciences or advertising or healthcare, et cetera. And that is really keeping a very strong base for residential investment in New York. And it's been the same story on the rental side. The rental market as well was unprecedented levels of leasing activity. We've seen concessions burn off. We've seen rent rates now return to pre-pandemic levels across Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. That's the broad market context, but let's sort of bring it down to the ground. You're right. The project that you see behind me is one that we are actively developing under construction on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. This project is known as Claremont Hall. It is an incredibly unique project that was really born um, inside of this pandemic. I mean, the lead up to the project has been happening for many, many years. But in June of 2020, we closed on a construction loan for this project. We closed on our equity for the project and we launched into construction for what will be a 460 foot tall tower rising from the campus of the Union Theological Seminary. And I think this is an interesting project to talk about in the context of recovery, because in order for a city to recover, it needs to sustain its institutions. This project is really an ability for the Union Theological Seminary, which is one of the leading academic institutions up in this very academically oriented neighborhood. Across the street is Columbia and Barnard and the Manhattan School of Music. So these institutions need to renew and they need to find ways to grow and they need to find ways to fund that growth. So this tower is uh, emerging from approximately 300,000 square feet of air rights that were sitting above the seminary that we have activated into a brand new mixed use project. Well, there's about 50,000 square feet of the project that is for Union Theological Seminary, which will be new classroom space for them, new office space and 27 units of faculty housing that will enable their faculty to live in proximity to where they work. So speaking about affordable housing, 
Uh, we'll talk about, you know, capital A affordable housing when I speak about Java, uh, which is a project we're developing on the Greenpoint waterfront. But there's all different types of workforce housing and being able to live in proximity to where you work is really important. And so this project will deliver housing for faculty as well. The floors above that are all residential condominium. This building is a pretty spectacular building designed by Robert A.M. Stern, and we will be bringing this building to market for sale for residential sales um, commencing at the beginning of uh, Q2 of this year. So in the context of the backdrop of this incredible year we've had in 2021, we are quite optimistic that we will continue to see strong desire to locate and live in New York. And all of that is really happening prior to any sort of mandated return to office for most employers. So I think that's also interesting when you think about New York City's resilience and recovery. It's not happening because the office occupancy has ticked back up. It's happening because people want to live in the city. They perceive this as a good time for investment. And they're really responding to the things that make New York so credible as a place to live, which is, you know, it's cultural institutions, it's academic institutions, you know, the energy of the city, which has returned. I want to ask a question on that, Melissa. Would you consider that an example of like a live work play development? You know, it certainly has some elements of that, certainly for the faculty that will be living in this building and also working next door at the university. Um, You know, I do think that live work play really speaks to this concept of 15-minute cities. And um, 15-minute cities is really all about making sure that you have mixed-use communities and neighborhoods. I think we are really turning away from what I refer to as a bit of the monocultures, like the, the, the neighborhoods that performed the worst over the last couple of years have really been those that are um, too commercially focused. So like Midtown is an example of a neighborhood that I think will benefit from increased mixed-use development. And I think we're really seeing that as you look at the projects that are being planned for Midtown, is bringing more residential into that traditional commercial center. And that commercial center will benefit from that because it will start to develop more 24-7 style amenities that will enliven that neighborhood. Um, Across Manhattan, you saw that the residentially focused neighborhoods have been quite resilient because people are spending so much time at home. But I think what we really want to get to is an opportunity to have neighborhoods that have more diversity of uses. This neighborhood that we're developing, the very, very tip of the Upper West Side, up in Morningside Heights, is a very academic-focused neighborhood. And that's a huge strength of the neighborhood. But that neighborhood has had very few opportunities for new housing, which is why we think a project like this will really be quite coveted and is quite unique in terms of the condominium landscape across New York. Melissa, you know, Lend-Lease tends to develop a lot of properties along the coastline. Is there any specific reason why they look at the coastlines? It's an astute observation. We, you know, we're a global developer, so there's a lot of coastline globally, Uh, but we have found ourselves with significant projects in Sydney on the waterfront, in East Boston on the waterfront, Chicago on the waterfront, New York. And I would say that um, as as I think about new projects for New York, we really want to leverage that best practice. That's part of what Lendlease wants to do as a, you know, being a global developer is, you know, we do feel like we have a lot of experience around these issues of sea level rise, resilience. We do a lot around sustainability and decarbonization. It was great to hear that we've got folk, you know, from the energy sector on the phone, because that's a space where 
spending a lot of time in as we move towards our net zero carbon commitments. I think that part of it is coasts are great places to, uh, you know, to sort of bring all of this expertise together. I mean, they're very complicated sites. A good site for Lend-Lease needs to have some complexity inherent to it. Otherwise, others, others would have done it. And I think also we've seen that that's where a lot of, um, you know, as is the case in New York, our coastline is really undergoing enormous transformation from being predominantly industrial manufacturing to regenerating into residential. Mm-hmm. So that story really plays out all over the globe where, you know, coasts used to be the sort of manufacturing and industrial frontier back when we were shipping and, you know, docking societies. And so that's the land that exists to be regenerated. On the waterfront of Greenpoint, Williamsburg, we are developing uh, quite a significant project that I actually want to touch on because it really connects back to some of what um, Michael was talking about as he's talking about Long Island and developing on the waterfront. Interestingly enough, New York City has 520 miles of waterfront. It is more waterfront coastline than Miami, Boston, LA, and San Francisco combined. New York is really a coastline waterfront city. And I think that the way that we think about our coastline and New York's leadership around resilience and coastline is because we almost have to be because we have so much of it. Now, what we're doing at Greenpoint is we are redeveloping a full city block into about 850 units of uh, new construction rental housing. 30% of that will be affordable under the Affordable New York program. And I know that Bob is going to connect us to the topic of 421A. So I'll let you touch on that, Bob. But this project will be grandfathered under the existing Affordable New York 421A program, which expires in June and is a real focus for the real estate community in New York. We need clarity on what that Affordable New York 421A program will be going forward after June. But this project will happen under the existing program. It will deliver 250 units of affordable housing as a part of the total project. It will also completely redevelop a waterfront park at the coastline, which will be a publicly accessible park, and deliver a new water ferry uh, landing station as well as we see more continued activity on the East River around water ferry transit as a mass transit system that New Yorkers and New York City can rely upon. So I think the topic of resiliency and sustainability is critical and key as we think about New York developing a future, not just coming back, but coming back better. How are we doing that? It's going to be a real eye around sustainability, and I'm happy to touch on that further. All right, great. Thank you. Um, Are there any examples of uh, something that's planned for like a live, work, play development repurpose use of an existing office building that's almost 100% vacant in Midtown that you know of? I think we're still pretty early in this evolution. So I think we know that we're seeing many office buildings that will be sort of functionally obsolete because of the age of the office building. You know, you have to realize that New York City is a very old city and we have, you know, the average age of a New York City building is something like 60 or 70 years old. So we need to renew our office stock. Um, And I think you've seen that happen through the last cycle. That's why Hudson Yards was in part so successful. You know, that's an extraordinary development on the West side that really benefited from delivering best-in-class office space. So we need more best-in-class office space because the older stock is functionally obsolete and will get repurposed and reimagined into mixed-use communities, affordable housing, other types of residential. And that will also enable this sort of mixed-use, you know, these mixed-use corridors to emerge where, where corridors that were all traditionally so heavily concentrated to commercial office, that will enable that residential development to start to infill. 
quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And now, with that in mind, I have added a resource page to the Realty Speak website. Designed with you in mind, it's organized with labeled sections that you can click on to reveal a list of professionals, organizations, and companies in that category that you may rely on to help you, the investment property owner. It is a work in progress, but there are already many resources there that you can benefit from. And the first thing you'll want to do is go to the first category, Property Owner Advocate Organizations. There you will find links to RSA, CHIP, and SPONY, and instructions on how to receive their incredibly informative periodic emails that will keep you in the loop with everything you need to know as an investment property operator. Check it out at realtyspeak.myc. It is resources on the menu, and I added a link in the show notes of this episode as well. My mission, be the best real estate advisor, consultant, and broker I can be while helping you sell, purchase, and finance investment real estate. I'm just a phone call away, 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Solutions in real estate, it's in my DNA. And now back to the show. Bill, if I could just pick up on, and this is in Manhattan, we're seeing a lot of leasing activity, uh, more than you would think. So I think two things, that after a year and a half to two years of working from home, WFH, as you call it, I think a lot of companies have realized and a lot of people that they want to get out and that the collaborative environment that happens from being in the office is so far superior to not being in the office. And I think the first few months of the pandemic, Everybody or most people were like, wow, this works. We can actually function. But then it diminished over time. And I think there was a real yearning to get back into the office. And so, but picking up on the question you asked, we're seeing a lot of leasing activity more in the downtown areas um, where the young people live and want and work. And, And so what we're seeing is rents are as high as they were, and there's a lot of demand for really nice space. So the landlords that we represent, there are really, you know, the all-star landlords. There's a lot of demand for their space. And also, and this is pandemic related, office buildings, some of them have outdoor space and we're seeing huge premiums being paid by tenants who are able to get that outdoor space because for the tenants who have meetings and sort of social events that they host, they're seeing that post-pandemic, there is such a coveting to have events outside that office buildings that with it have outdoor space, premiums are being paid and that is what we're seeing. From what Melissa said about the 421A and the fact that, uh, well, it's, it, it was 421A, then it was called Affordable New York, now it's set to expire in June. You know, why don't we segue to Bob? Bob, thanks for being patient. And then please share with us you know, all all your uh, data that you have on, you know, what's going on in the investment sales world. Sure. Happy to do that, Bill. And thanks for having me. And Bill, I appreciate your comments about, I think you said something to the effect I invented the multifamily business. I, I let me assure you the multifamily business was alive and well in New York many, many decades before I got here. Well, I think you changed the paradigm a little bit, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. No, I appreciate that. Um, but just, we, you know, we're talking about the comeback of the city. Clearly, the New York City investment sales market is making a comeback and remarkably quickly relative to what everybody thought. You know, I love talking about the market in terms of statistics. 
It was very clear the peak of the market cycle was in 2014 and 2015. In 2014, 5,534 buildings were sold in New York City, an all-time record by more than 10%. 80.1 billion in investment sales volume in 2015, also an all-time record. Since that time, the New York City investment sales market was in correction mode, which really started in October of 2015. From October of 15 through February of 2020, the volume of sales had dropped 56% year over year. Values were down about 10 to 12% on a blended basis. COVID comes along and basically converts this mostly volume correction into a value correction. There were certain sectors of the market that were down in Manhattan by as much as 50%, mainly land, retail, and hotels. If you realize COVID started in March of 2020, it looked as if it was perceived to be the low point in volume. Second and third quarter uh, were very, very low, about 1.4, billion in sales volume, respectively. So we went from in just looking at the Manhattan market for deals over $10 million, um, the market in 2020 was 11 billion. Uh, that was down from 57.5 billion in 2015. So we came into 2021 expecting the market would would pick up, uh, but actually the low point in volume uh, was in the first quarter of 2021 with only 1.1 billion in sales. Uh, that has picked up since. However, if you annualize going through the first three quarters of the year, the market was on pace only for about nine and a half billion. So it actually would have been lower than 2020, but we had a very, very robust fourth quarter. There were $6.8 billion of investment sales transactions uh, in the fourth quarter. So we, uh, we finished the year at 14 billion, which was up 26% from last year. And if you look at number of properties sold, which I I've always said is more indicative of actual volume and activity in the market than dollar volume because large transactions can really skew the the dollar volume numbers. We had 65 transactions in the fourth quarter, over $10 million. That led us to 167 for the year, which was up 61% from 2021. So those quarterly totals in the fourth quarter, dollar volume was the highest since the fourth quarter of 19. Number of properties sold was the highest since the fourth quarter of 2018. So all of this is very, very positive. But I'll use as an analogy, if you're a baseball player and you hit one home run last year and you hit three home runs this year, yes, you've tripled your home run production, but you're still not a great home run hitter. So uh, when we look at these statistics, the number of property or the dollar volume of sales is still 75% below where it was at the peak. Number of properties sold is still 65% below where we were at the peak. So we do have a long way to go, but this this six-year trend of a negative volume, negative activity has definitely turned the corner. We think 2022 will be an extremely robust year, but for any externalities relative to policy, relative to taxes, relative to other things, profoundly impacts the investment sales market. Uh, if you look back over the past 38 years, and yes, I'm, I'm finishing up my 38th year brokering in the city, three of the top five years in sales volume were precipitated by changes in tax policy, 1986, 1998, 2012. And to the extent that we have a significant change in capital gains taxes or 1031 exchanges, uh, that could derail the market from 
uh, what looks to be a very robust recovery. But but for those changes in tax policy, uh, we believe 2022 will be a robust year and should have uh, increased sales volumes for several years moving forward. So talk a little bit about the uh, affordable New York and the prospect of more affordable housing, because we do have an affordable housing shortage, a big one, and what Eric Adams might be doing. Well, first on regarding 421A, it's critically important to have that tax abatement program. It is, uh, it is economically uh, not feasible to build rental housing without some type of, of tax abatement program. So critically important. Uh, the uncertainty that is created by the pending expiration of that uh, is having an impact on the market. Many owners have uh, taken proactive steps to get a footing in the ground by mid-June to have their site qualify for the program. But those that haven't, it's uh, virtually too late at this point uh, to get that footing in. We are hopeful that the administration will take steps to have the law renewed before it expires. There is a uh, school of thought that uh, the politicians want to significantly uh, marginalize the impact of the program and that letting it expire and then bringing back a new program will be easier to modify than modifying the existing program. We'll see what happens relative to that, but it is critically important. It's it's important not only for uh, low-income housing, but workforce housing, which is so desperately needed. And every time I have an opportunity to talk to a legislator about these issues, I tell them that you know the private sector has more dexterity than anything else in the world. You create the right incentives you could get hundreds of thousands of units built very, very quickly. I know you give Melissa the right incentive, she'll go out and build 20 buildings, but we need those incentives to make sense. And the the great thing that exists in this dynamic between the public sector and the private sector is that from a public sector perspective, the main objective is to maximize tax revenue per tax parcel. From the real estate industry's perspective, All we really care about is what are taxes per square foot. So the municipality has the ability through creating changes in density to achieve both objectives, to achieve higher tax revenue per tax parcel and to achieve lower taxes per square foot. And with the right balance of incentives, we can get all the affordable and workforce housing that we need. That being said, the question about the new mayor, Eric is a friend. I think that he is very cognizant of the fact or the importance that business plays in New York City's future and economy. Uh, The real estate industry through real estate taxes, transfer taxes, mortgage recording taxes uh, provides more than 50% of the city's budget. And so it's critically important that we have a thriving real estate industry. And I think it's also important that our politicians realize that broadening our tax base is critically important. Uh, We have 1,600 families in New York City that pay 27% of the income taxes. How many of those families have now relocated out of the city? We're waiting for those statistics to come in, but we need to broaden the tax base. We need to not have things like the Kingsbridge Armory fiasco, the Annabelle Basin fiasco, the, the not rezoning of industry city. These are things that local politicians were against, but what they would have done is broaden the tax base, created jobs, created more tax revenue. Uh, How can you be against these things? 
I think the mayor is very much in tune with a number of things that would be very beneficial to our real estate industry. And we're very, very optimistic and hopeful that changes will be made that will benefit everyone in the city. Bob, what about the uh, major turnover in the city council? You think that's going to have a positive impact? There was a major turnover in city council. And yes, it's the balance between the mayor and the council. The results of that were not as as bad for the real estate industry as they might have been. But again, I think it's important that we look at and our legislators look at a number of things, Uh, look at quality of life, look at issues impacting crime. You know, crime is a huge issue. And I think there was a lot of optimism surrounding uh, Eric being elected, given his past as a policeman and a police captain. It will have the respect of the police, the industry. And I think the broader business community in New York is very concerned about our new district attorney coming out saying he's not going to enforce the law and not going to prosecute folks who commit certain crimes. Uh, That was very, very troubling. And I think that, you know, we need to have commuters feel safe getting on trains and buses so that they get back into the office. The physical occupancy of office buildings is only 31, 32% presently. Uh, We need to get that back up to impact retail, impact a number of different things. And I think that public safety is a huge component uh, in terms of getting folks back into the office. The whole ecosystem of life-work balance needs to be adjusted so that folks feel safe coming back to work and getting our city moving again in the right direction. I want to circle back to the point you made about the tax revenue per site and per square foot. And I think a lot of people feel that sometimes an affordable housing project that comes with a huge tax abatement is an unfair advantage to the developer as opposed to existing buildings, you know, that are paying the full taxes. And I think the point that you made actually speaks to that very, very well, because the tax revenue on that site is not changing, right? It's staying the same. You know, there's a lot of pushback, uh, people saying, well, you can't give a tax break to these buildings where you're going to have multimillionaires living. Why should they get a tax break? Well, let's put this in perspective. And I have this conversation with elected officials all the time. And I I think most of them who are against it don't really understand the issue. So you have some uh, dilapidated three and four story buildings on a site. That site produces $200,000 of tax revenue for the year. The site is demolished. A new luxury building is built there. Yes, there's a tax benefit and some multimillionaire buys a $20 million apartment and is getting a tax break. But that tax break is temporary. And in the future, the taxes on that one apartment will be much more than the whole tax parcel was was producing in revenue for the city. And the the taxes on that entire building might be $10 million or $20 million versus the 200,000 that was being collected before. So I think we have to look past the fact that some people may get a temporary tax break. It's not a tax break in perpetuity. It's temporary. Ultimately, the building of that building creates jobs. It creates economic activity. It will create more tax revenue uh, and ultimately has several tangential benefits for the city. And it's so important to have the city growing. Cities are like sharks. They have to keep moving forward to stay alive. 
We need new development. And the fact that 421A is expiring and we're not taking proactive measures to renew it is potentially creating an air bubble in the in the development pipeline in the city. Yeah, I was just going to jump in on that in terms of a use case for 421A. I mean, Bob cited an example, and I think that those examples are few and far between. The vast majority of uh, applications for 421A are in rental housing production, so creating new rental housing. And Bob is absolutely right that you have, for the example of a project on the waterfront or an infill project, you continue to pay the taxes that are already being charged on that site. You just don't pay the taxes on the improvements for a certain number of years. In the interim, you also get 30% of the units as affordable housing, which I wanted to get into this conversation because 421A is really an essential affordable housing program. So yes, it creates more housing overall, including market rate housing, but it enables the creation of affordable housing without the city paying for it. The city is not investing capital dollars to create the affordable housing. The affordable housing is part of the inducement package of the government saying we are not going to increase the taxes from what they were when you first bought the site. Yeah, and I think, Melissa, that's a great point. And one of the things to think about also is particularly in Manhattan, even in the depths of COVID, there was only about a six to nine month period we went through where developers were looking at land only for rental housing and nobody wants to buy land to build a condo. But that quickly shifted. And even today, the overwhelming majority of development sites in the city are being bought for condo construction. That's not helping the affordable housing problem that we have. And you you need that 421A to stimulate rental construction. It creates affordable units. And the city desperately needs those units for folks who want to be able to afford to live in the city. What? Melissa and Bob are talking about is actually mirrored on Long Island also, uh, where many of these kinds of projects require some sort of IDA assistance or other tax relief. And frequently what happens is there is large opposition from different groups. School districts, for instance, have been very active in opposing IDA tax pilot payment agreements fearing that they will lose tax revenue. But it's very short-sighted because in the short run, yes, there may be some pilot benefits. On the other hand, without the project, many of these properties would be performing subpar. The school district would not be getting the tax revenue from it. And in the long run, everybody is going to get more revenue from taxes than otherwise. And it's not just school districts, it's community groups and even some other municipalities. So I think what we're saying is there has to be a creative partnership between government and developers to craft the right tax incentive programs for different kinds of development and different properties to maximize the benefit for everybody. Just to add to that, all the people that are moving into these rental properties, whether it be the affordable part or the luxury part of that rental project or a condo, you're increasing the population of the neighborhood, which creates the need for more businesses to serve that population, which translates into more sales tax. So by taking that underperforming uh, asset, as Michael said, and turning it into a population explosion, you're really bringing a lot more tax dollars into the city. 
or, or, the, or the municipality where the project happens to be. Exactly right. And another factor out here is many of these type of mixed-use developments are now being built around transit facilities. The common term is transit-oriented development out here. And what that does also is it makes it easier for people to live in these buildings without owning two or three cars, lessening traffic on the roadways, to look at it globally as a very large benefit to increase development in the short and the long run. Yeah, and in the city, um, the city planning has done a very good job uh, over the past couple of decades of increasing density around mass transportation hubs and decreasing density far away from mass transit. Uh, that dynamic has to continue something that really would help the whole affordable housing program. We've been calling for this for many, many years is the state should lift the 12 FAR cap on residential density and city planning should continue to encourage even higher density around major transportation hubs with an offsetting decrease in density further away from mass transit. Uh, And that's something that would be very, very beneficial to the city as well. Not to mention the economy of the city uh, because it puts people to work. It brings people back to to live in the the area, uh, and it makes uh, a great incentive for developers. Does anyone want to touch on Governor Hochul's plan? Bill, one thing I could touch on, I'll actually give two examples. We have a client who is a food production business, and they own a lot of real estate on Long Island, and they needed to expand and build more for their production, and they got a nice IDA package where their real estate taxes would sort of be frozen for about 10 years. They were still going to be paying a substantial amount of real estate taxes, but the increases being frozen for 10 years made the numbers work from a budget standpoint for them to build more facilities, which employed a lot of people. And Governor Hochul came to the press conference that sort of launched this. So she seemed to be a big advocate. This is my example of her. She seemed to be a big proponent of the incentives to develop real estate, which coincided with creation of jobs. You know, I'm encouraged by what I saw in that example. And then another one, our client sold a substantial, about a 10-acre piece of land next to the boardwalk in Long Beach a few months ago. And this was land that lied fallow for 20, 30 years. No use, got involved in, you know, just government morass and couldn't get the project off the ground. And then over time, the numbers just didn't work for development. But the IDA, the Nassau County IDA, gave a, you know, a, a package of tax benefits that ultimately made the numbers work. And a very substantial developer is now going to come in and build you know, a rental building and a condo building. It was the IDA freezing real estate taxes for a period of time that is going to increase the real estate taxes that are now being paid you know, many-fold. So as everybody on this program has been talking about, taxes increase and the tax base, as Bob talked about, broadens. And that's what's needed for a vital economy in whatever area that we're talking about. And Bill, one one of the things we we didn't touch on, which I think is critically important and is going to be extremely interesting to, to look at this year, is that low interest rates are like rocket fuel for the real estate industry. And we have had historically low interest rates now for 12 years. 
And even in the wake of these low, low interest rates, we had plummeting volume of sales. It's starting to turn around now, as I mentioned earlier. But we have now this morning, the stats came out that CPI is running at 7%. That is a 40-year high going back to 1982. The Fed now is indicating they're probably going to raise rates three or four times this year. What is the impact that's going to have on the marketplace? I mean, not too long ago, the 10-year was at 120, 125. This morning, it opened at 173. What is going to happen to the 10-year? What's going to happen to lending rates? How is that going to affect the market moving forward? But I think that we're in for a period where there's going to be upward pressure on rates. That puts upward pressure on cap rates. And if we don't have a commensurate increase in the level of activity economically that will drive NOIs higher, then increased cap rates uh, will mean lower property values. Now, just because rates increase doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a bad thing for real estate. It depends why rates are increasing. And it also depends on, you know, you can have higher cap rates and higher values if NOIs are going up. But you need to take a look at the broader economy to figure out what the exact impact is going to be. But that's probably the one thing we're going to be looking at most closely as we get into 2022 is what the the impact of increasing rates is going to have on the marketplace. You know, I'd like to find out uh, what everyone's thought is on their overall outlook of 2022, the positive things they see going forward. Bob, you want to go first? Sure. I, I'm very, very optimistic. As I said, if we if we leave capital gains tax increases and modifications to 1031 exchanges off the table for the time being, I'm extremely optimistic about sales volume uh, and property values into 2022 and beyond. The period we've gone through for the past six years, I believe, has pulled that rubber band down so low that it's going to snap back with vigor. And I'm very, very optimistic about where we're going uh, for the next few years. Melissa, how about you? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. I'm optimistic. I'm going to give a different reason why. You know, we've touched a little bit on the political context that we find ourselves in. We have a new mayor. We have a new governor. We have a governor that will go through an election this year. After the past eight years, what was not a time of productive partnership between government and the private sector, you know, including the real estate community. So I'm optimistic because I think there's an opportunity to reset that. We know that um, uh, creative public-private partnership is what is required in order to unleash economic activity in our city. I think we have leadership that is attuned to that and is looking to uh, figure out how to now translate that into policy. So I think there's a real opportunity to reshape the conversation moving forward and a new set of players with a new kind of commitment to growth here. So that's why I'm optimistic looking into 2022. Thanks, Melissa. Gary? Well, I'm optimistic as well um, for all the reasons that Bob and Melissa said, but sort of like a different reason is, you know, and not based on what you see on the street every day, but which is real estate over the last decade or two has become very institutional. So there are a lot of significant businesses that are in the real estate industry on both the owner side. You know, we have REITs, we have publicly traded companies. We have very large companies that own a lot of real estate. 
And we have lots of lenders who are very substantial, who are publicly traded, who, and we have funds, and we have so many em- people employed in the real estate industry that things have to happen because businesses need to keep working. They need pipelines, they need transactions, they need activity. So just because of the sheer number of people that are employed and how much companies have invested in the infrastructures that they've developed, they need to create and be part of activity. So that's outside of the economic forces. That's just the sheer reality of the economic engine that's real estate and how many people are employed in the industry. And Michael? Well, I guess I'm last, but I'm going to share uh, everybody else's optimism. I love Bob's uh, rubber band metaphor. I think that's super. Uh, For me, I think all of these points are good. I also am very optimistic because of the people I see and meet every day. I see a lot of new players coming into the marketplace. I see a lot of younger uh, people, young business people, next generation type people who want to develop something of their own. I also see a great driver, especially out on Long Island with new demographic groups coming in, new views, new attitudes. And so I think ultimately our success is going to depend on fresh new ideas from highly educated, motivated and good quality, hard-thinking people. And, and that makes me extremely optimistic. Well, on that note, I want to thank the four of you for joining us today. Before I turn it over to Rick, Gary, Melissa, Bob, and Michael, that was awesome. That was fantastic. And Rick, I'm going to turn it over to you to close out the event. I think you're on mute, right? I, I, I am on mute. <laughs> yeah. Some knew, people we, like we, it that way. We knew way. that was going to happen with all of us, and I think it did. Okay. Some people like it when I'm on yeah, mute. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, w- I want to thank you all uh, for great information. So I want to thank Michael Son, managing member of Son Ward, Bob Knackle, a chairman of New York Investment Sales at JLL, Melissa Roman Birch, executive general manager at Lendlease, Gary Meltzer, a partner at Meltzer, Lippe. Goldstein and Braidstone. I'm very impressed of what's going on in New York. And uh, that's coming from a Bostonian. So <laughs> that's a compliment. I want to thank our sponsors for today. I want to thank Inspired Technology, U.S. Pavement Services, Inc., Evolution Energy Partners, Northmark, and San Ward. And a happy 2022. Take care, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Take care. If you would like to contact any of our panelists, then check the show notes for that info. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so right on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website, and there's an opt-in toward the top of the page on the right. Or just listen to Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app, like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Go to the app, search for Realty Speak, find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, 
or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time. Thank you.